Well, good morning at, uh, from London to all of the FS Club viewers and listeners. Uh, I'm delighted to have you here today for a session on how to be happy. Uh, and I hope that this is very much a fun session. And I'm delighted to welcome back Dr. Raj Perso, who last year gave us uh, one of our most popular, if not the most popular of our series, which was how to panic properly in a pandemic. Uh, now that you're fully panicked out, Raj is here today to say, uh, what are you going to do next? And uh, you're going to learn how to be happy. Now, you know me, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zen. And it really is a privilege to be able to introduce many of these webinars. And I can only do so because our sponsors allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. And that doesn't sound a particularly emotional subject, but uh, I think that we'd like to see fun and happiness in all three areas of technology, economics, and finance. And certainly we like to, to do that because we enjoy our jobs. Uh, so today um, our agenda is very much a, a me getting out of the way so that you can hear from our expert Raj. Raj is gonna speak for approximately 20 minutes. Uh, last time there were copious questions. Uh, Raj is an excellent, uh, excellent Q&A person. So I'd like you to please do as ever, put your questions into the GoToWebinar question facility. I'll feed those into a conversation with Raj. And a few quick points. Uh, one, the slides will be posted. Uh, two, uh, all of the questions and answers will be sent to Raj. So if you've got something that you'd like, just put it in the question bar and I'll make sure that he gets all those. Your emails will be attached to, to that, if you don't mind. Uh, and finally, yes, this is being recorded and the recording will be up in approximately 48 hours, uh, maybe a little bit more swiftly, but, uh, but that's that. So um, with no further ado, Raj, the floor is very much yours. Thank you very much. Uh, so my name is Raj Basord and I'm a consultant psychiatrist. And in the last talk, I described a little bit about how whenever you go to see a therapist or a psychologist or a psychotherapist, you should inquire a little bit about their training and their background to get a sense because the field is so full of different people with different names and different titles like psychoanalysts, psychiatrists, psychologists, people are confused as to what the different backgrounds are, the different training. And it's important to ask about that because all these different fields or professions are coming at these um, issues from different perspectives. Now, me being a psychiatrist means that I have been to medical school. Hard to believe, I know, but I am a qualified doctor and psychiatry is a branch of medicine. And the reason why that's important in our discussion about happiness is, in fact, if you think about the academic field and there actually is a science to happiness, most people who are interested in the science of happiness and who publish research in this area are psychologists, not psychiatrists. And psychology is a very important discipline. People go to universities and study it. Um, but psychologists tend to come at the subject from a non-medical perspective. So they're not thinking about mental illnesses or, or diseases of the mind in the way that psychiatrists tend to think about people and their problems. Now, the reason why I, as a psychiatrist, uh, am very interested in happiness goes back to a fundamental problem in medical research. So in medicine, and it's a very powerful technology, as we've seen with the rollout of all the different vaccines, uh, you have doctors doing, let's say, research on cancer of the pancreas uh, in, in one silo, in one university, in another university, there'll be doctors doing research on dementia, and somewhere else there'll be doctors specializing in research on pneumonia. And um, there's a sense in which that approach has been extremely powerful. And we understood the body, how the body works. And we've come up with very powerful technologies to try and treat cancer of the pancreas as a result. However, has medicine missed a trick, which is that the vast majority of diseases seem to get more prevalent as you get older. And no matter how fit you are, no matter how much you avoid cancer of the pancreas, I'm afraid the inevitable eventually happens and you end up being no more, despite medicine's best efforts. So one of the things people have begun to think about more recently, is there some underlying structure to life that deteriorates over time and explains why a multiplicity of diseases tends to arrive in the human body as you get older? In other words, is there some underlying theme or underlying structure or problem that explains disease in general, which doctors who keep specializing in different areas are missing because they're focusing on one particular area. And the only branch of medicine that tries to get at this underlying structure that might explain all disease, you could call that a theory of everything, are the people who are doing work on longevity. Um, and so it's quite interesting, um, this problem. And if you think about physics, uh, physics asks fundamental questions and the current quest is for a theory of everything which is why should the rules or the laws that govern electromagnetism 
differ in some sense from the rules or laws that govern gravity or relativity. So physicists believe ultimately there'll be some underlying basic explanation for everything. And that once we get there, that the universe will be revealed in a more complete sense. And there is a sense in which medicine is looking for a theory of everything that explains all disease. And is there a sense in which what would look like a theory of everything for the social sciences? And I believe the area of happiness is exactly where that area would be. So that's why this is a very important subject. So in psychiatry, you've got people specializing in eating disorders and obsessive compulsive disorder and, and other disorders, and they don't tend to meet or mingle. But is it possible that the underlying structure that explains all the different psychiatric disorders is that people are basically unhappy and that their unhappiness just manifests itself in particular specific ways, depending on particular circumstances? So going back to medicine, is happiness the area where you will find a, ultimately a theory of everything, just as medicine ultimately theoretically should find a theory of everything that explains all disease. So it's a very grand project, and I'm, that's exactly why this is an extremely um, important subject. Now, the other thing I'm going to say to you, and many of you who have seen my other seminar I'll know my style. I'm rather robust and very irritating to be in a room with, and I have no doubt I'm going to irritate you, and I'm hoping you'll come back at me and and um, um, throw some questions at me in terms of what I'm saying, because I'm gonna be very provocative. And of course, my all, always my opening provocative comment is everything you think you know about happiness is wrong. And I'm gonna be explaining that in, in this talk. And that's why happiness is so elusive for so many people. And the first problem is people don't define happiness carefully enough. They don't think, given what a very important word this is, exactly what they're referring to when they use the word happiness. So if we could have um, the first slide. Um, um, so we're going to start with a poll. Um, and um, in this poll, I think Michael may be able to give me live the answers, um, um, the polling results uh, as they come in. So here's the poll. In a higher IQ country, on average, are people happier or sadder? In other words, is there a correlation or association between IQ and happiness? Um, higher IQ countries are either happier or sadder. I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are, what your or your um, results are. Well, as uh, ever in our audience, Raj, uh, over half of them have voted. I'll give it just a few more seconds. It's a bit of a loaded question, you think about it, because uh, as you're very smart. You'll answer uh, the poll more quickly. <laughs> okay, that's a, that's a very provocative thing to say, Michael. Yeah. It is indeed. All right, then. I'm now going to close the poll, and I think uh, the results, are, uh, and here it is, uh, Basically, 20% believe hierarchy countries are happier and 80% believe they're sadder. And I think yes. I confess to you, I fell very much under number two as well. So I'm with the majority on this one. Okay, so it's a very interesting result. So it's interesting how people are thinking of um, um, happiness may not come from being smart. And they've got a good intuition here because the, the question was about countrywide levels of IQ. And people would be surprised to know that in fact, countries do differ on average IQ levels quite significantly. And I, I, I'm gonna ask maybe towards the end, don't Google the result, which country in Europe has the highest average IQ? You'll, you'll be quite surprised by the answer. Don't Google it. I wrote an article about this recently, but think about what you think the answer might be. Now, um, at an individual level, if you measure individuals and their IQ, there's actually no relationship between IQ and happiness, which is a bit surprising. You'd expect maybe people with a higher IQ to be more successful in life and to be able to make their way through life and solve problems of life, and therefore you would have thought they might be happier. But on the other hand, we know that higher IQ people tend to worry more and they tend to see beyond the obvious and think more deeply about possible problems coming down the railroad track. So when the government official comes on the TV and says, oh, the vaccine rollout's going really well um, and um, nothing to worry about, Higher IQ people tend to go, hmm, I wonder if that's really the case. And they tend to think harder about what's going on. And as a result, they worry more and maybe that delivers more unhappiness. But very interestingly, recent research has found that at a country level, not at an individual level, countries that have a higher IQ tend to be um, happier. So why is that? Well, let's think about this. Imagine you're a high IQ person. I'm sure everyone in the seminar is a high IQ person by definition, otherwise you wouldn't be uh, watching this. And you work in a company and it's full of dumb people. OK, this is very irritating. You've got to handle the dumb people. You explain stuff all the time to them. They don't get it. It's frustrating. Notice in this context of being a high IQ person surrounded by dumb people, that's a recipe for unhappiness. OK, 
Now, imagine you're a high IQ person working in a company full of high IQ people. Now, in this situation, you're going to be much happier. Notice the key variable is not your IQ, it's the IQ of people around you. Okay? A high IQ country has high IQ people around you. So maybe in a high IQ country, having high intelligence leads to happiness. Um, but notice an important point about the science of happiness. The intervening variable isn't your individual IQ, but it's the kind of community of people you're surrounded by. Okay, let's move on to the next slide. Um, this is a slide of uh, General Charles de Gaulle, famous French leader, um, talking uh, to the Queen and to Prince Philip. And lurking in the background there, a little bit to the left of the picture, is Madame de Gaulle the uh, partner of General Charles de Gaulle. And I want to tell this anecdote. This anecdote comes in different versions and many different versions of this story. So bear with me if the version I tell you isn't the one that you might find on the internet, but it's my favorite version of the story. All the different versions have the same person at the center of them, which is Madame de Gaulle. The different versions just depend on where it is that she said this famous thing. So the version I'm going to go with is Harold Macmillan, a very patrician prime minister of the UK in the 1960s, is attending a very solemn, an important state occasion, which is the state occasion of the retirement of Charles de Gaulle. And uh, it's very solemn, it goes on for a long time, and Harold Macmillan finds himself standing next to Madame de Gaulle. And in an attempt to make conversation in this very long, somber, important, full of pomp and circumstance uh, state occasion, he turns to Madame de Gaulle and tries to make conversation with her. And he says to her, he asks her a question, what are you most looking forward to, Madame de Gaulle, after the retirement of President Charles de Gaulle? Um, much to his surprise, he's slightly shocked and startled by her answer, which really catches him off guard. So in response to the question that Harold Macmillan put to Madame de Gaulle, which is what is she most looking, up, looking forward to after the retirement of Charles de Gaulle, she says, a penis. Well, I mean, what do you say if someone says that to you at a very solemn and important state occasion? Harold Macmillan, there are various accounts as to what he did. I mean, some people think he just turned to the person on his left and tried to come conduct the conversation with someone else and not pursue the conversation with Madame de Gaulle. There's another version of events where he says, um, um, well, not much time left for that then, um, apparently. Anyway, so later on, um, Harold Macmillan, after the event is over, on reflection, thinking very hard and worrying a bit about what Madame de Gaulle had said to him, realized on reflection that what Madame de Gaulle had been attempting to say, probably through a very heavy French accent, was the word happiness. Um, so right there, you have a central problem with the word happiness, which is what are people referring to when they use the word? What is the definition of happiness? And um, in order to get to the bottom of this point, you have to go back to Aristotle. If we can get the next slide up, um, it hopefully will be uh, a picture of Aristotle. Um, Aristotle um, says something very important about happiness and defining happiness. And Aristotle was around 2,300 years ago. And the very first starting point, if you could try to get a handle on happiness, is to go back to Aristotle, because he mounts an argument about the ultimate purpose of life being happiness, which has never really been bettered, though some people argue about that in recent times. So think about you're at a middle class dinner party, and you turn to the person to the right or left of you, and you say, say, what do you think is the ultimate purpose of life? And feel the temperature drop in the room because it's not really regarded as polite conversation. But this is the kind of thing the ancient Greeks were doing at their dinner parties, which is why the famous philosopher Nietzsche believes civilizations were going downhill ever since the ancient Greeks, because at their dinner parties, they discussed important stuff, unlike us, where we just make small talk. In fact, you would be invited to a dinner party in ancient Greece, and you'd be told the menu of conversation. You'd be told, we'll be discussing, and they'd give you a list of things, love, IQ, maybe, um, happiness, etc. And you'd have to come prepared to give a little five minute talk on the subject. And they would always save the really big guns, Socrates, Aristotle, right for the end. They let the young folk go first, and then finally the old folk would make the definitive comment. Anyway, Aristotle would hang around in the marketplace, and as people passed by, he would um, ask them questions. And this was a way of trying to tout for business because there was no tenure at Harvard back in the day when you were a, a philosopher in the marketplace in ancient Greece. So you try to show off your intellectual acumen to passers-by in the hope that these parents of children would think, oh, that's a bright guy, I'll pay him to teach my kids. So there's a kind of like touting for business element to some of these famous arguments that the philosophers mounted in the marketplace. Um, but they were irritating people as well. It's no accident that Socrates gets put to death. 
for precisely the reason you're about to discover. So Aristotle stops you as you hurry past him in the marketplace. And Aristotle says, so where are you rushing off to? And you say, well, I'm rushing to the Senate. And Aristotle goes, but why, why are you rushing to the Senate? You say, well, I have to make a speech. And he goes, yes, but why do you have to make a speech? So you see the kind of infinite regress you get into with these philosophers on why they're so irritating. It's like a five-year-old child. You know, but yes, but why? Yes, but why? Yes, but why? Okay, we'll just follow this argument through. It's a very important argument at the heart of the ultimate purpose of life. So why do you want to go to the Senate? Because I have to make a speech. Why do you have to make a speech? Because I need to be popular. Why do you need to be popular? Because I need to get power. Why do you need to get power? Now, it diverges at this point, obviously. You couldn't need to get power because you want to get to sleep around a lot with people and give the contracts to your best friends. Or uh, the other one is you want to make the world a better place. And why do you want to make the world a better place? Because it will make me happy. Aristotle is saying, wherever you start, wherever you go, you always end up at this final end point because it will make me happy. What, what are you going to do this weekend? Um, it's going to be a weekend of debauchery. Why do you want a weekend of debauchery? Ultimately, wherever you go, you get down to because it will make me happy. And what's really important about this result is that it doesn't seem to make sense to say, this is why the end point where the train hits the buffers, yeah, but why do you want to be happy? It does seem to make sense to say for every other answer you might give, yes, but why do you want sex? Yes, but why do you want power? Yes, but why do you want money? It does seem to, to be the case that any answer you give other than happiness begs the question of why do you want those things? Once you arrive at this end point of because it will make me happy, it doesn't seem that you can go anywhere else. It doesn't seem to make sense. Um, yeah, but why will it make you happy? The other profoundly disturbing um, consequence of this result, which is why we have to get back to defining happiness, it seems to make equivalent a weekend of debauchery because it will make me happy with a weekend of doing your PhD thesis. Well, why do you do that? Because it will make me happy. It seems a bit odd that there's an equivalence level then in the ultimate purpose if it doesn't really matter whether you're having a weekend of debauchery or a weekend of studying for your PhD, which is why Aristotle's definition of happiness is extremely important, okay? So the other argument that um, Aristotle's making about why happiness has to be the ultimate purpose of life and what it therefore means that when you read in COD psychology newspaper articles that if you pursue happiness, that's one way not to be happy. They've got that all wrong. What Aristotle is saying, the reason you're not happy is because you're not taking happiness nearly seriously enough because it's a deadly serious subject. Right. So uh, now the next anecdote I want to tell about Aristotle, you have to forgive me because it's incredibly sexist. So don't attack me. I'm just telling you the way Aristotle would have told you. He is a guy who lived 2,300 years ago. So it's very politically incorrect, but just hear me out because there's an underlying point that's more important. So Aristotle asks you to imagine you're at a party. It's a glitzy party. It's full of the wealthy and the famous and um, celebrities. And um, everyone who's anyone is at this party. And your friend comes over and says, you see that guy over there? That guy is the richest person in the world. The Sunday Times rich list have done a survey recently. He's richer than God. He's richer than everyone else here at the party. And in this anecdote, you may say, yes, yes, I think I remember reading a an article about him. You're right. He is the richest person on the planet. But um, I also read an article that said he's not happy. Implausible, perhaps, but certainly not out of the question. We're always reading newspaper articles about people who seem to have everything, yet are unhappy. So let's pursue the anecdote a bit further. You're at the same glitzy party. Friend comes over. She's that woman over there. This is the way it gets a bit sexist, I'm afraid. You see that woman over there? She's officially the most beautiful woman on the planet. They've done surveys, they've done analysis, and she is the most beautiful woman on the planet. And you go, yes, I think I remember reading a newspaper article of that effect. I agree with you. She is the most beautiful woman on the planet. But I also read an article that said she's not happy. Again, maybe implausible, but certainly possible. And we do read articles all the time of very, very attractive looking people who are not happy. At the same party, a friend comes over and says, you see that man over there? They've done research, they've done brain scanning studies. He is officially the happiest person on the planet. There's no doubt about it. They've done surveys. He is the god of bliss. He is the officially the happiest person on the planet. Would it make sense for you at that moment to say, yes, but I also read he's not very wealthy? I mean, would it make sense? Would it matter if you said, yeah, but he's got, yeah, but he hasn't got two pennies to rub together. That would seem like a mad thing to say. It's not relevant if he's officially the happiest person on the planet. Aristotle is making a point. Once you get to complete happiness, 
nothing can detract from it. It doesn't matter what deficit you now have, happiness seals the deal. However, anything else you say, richest person, most beautiful person, there's a, there could be a fly in the ointment that detracts from the ultimate purpose of being the richest person or the most beautiful person. So that's why it's a very powerful result. But what Aristotle means by happiness is different to what most people mean. And the most modern recent research is saying that Aristotle's understanding of happiness is a deeper level about two different kinds of happiness. And these two different kinds of happiness are absolutely crucial in delivering ultimate happiness because it gets into what does the word actually mean? And the, meaning, the word means something a bit more complicated than what you think happiness means. So basically psychologists have discovered there's two key kinds of happiness. This is fundamental to delivering happiness. And psychologists being very imaginative people have described or defined or labeled these two kinds of happiness, type one happiness and type two happiness. So type one happiness is the kind of happiness you um, get when you drink a nice glass of wine um, and uh, you have a nice meal and um, you hang out with your friends. So this is the hedonistic pleasurable end of happiness. Uh, there's a lot of dopamine release in the brain and um, you're having a great time. However, type one happiness, which is pleasurable and hedonistic, tends to be transient. Um, when the effects of the various class A drugs you took the night before have worn off, uh, you're no longer happy uh, the next day. Um, so it's transient but reliable by and large. Type two happiness is in marked contrast to type one happiness. Type two happiness is more cognitive and intellectual, and it's about the kind of satisfaction you feel when you look back over your life and you take pride in achievements, like you've got a great degree and you're proud of that. There's a kind of warm glow you get within you when you think about overcoming difficulty. Type two happiness tends to be about overcoming difficulty. Type one happiness doesn't involve overcoming difficulty. Um, type two happiness tends to be likely slightly longer lasting than type one happiness. But notice how type one and type two happinesses are colliding with each other. They're in tension with each other. The more you're pursuing your PhD thesis or doing good works of rescuing kittens in the West End of London, the less time you have to pursue type one happiness. And the more you're pursuing type one happiness, um, the warm rush of heroin through your veins, the less time you've got to pursue type two happiness, which is finish that PhD thesis. So these two things are in constant tension with each other, which is a very important result. The other key difference is type two happiness involves um, giving something to the world. Type one happiness involves taking something from the world. Someone's got to make you the nice meal that you then enjoy. In type two happiness, normally you are delivering something to the world, but delivering some kind of satisfaction from that. Um, so the answer to life, the universe and everything, the secret to happiness is to have the right balance of type one and type two happiness. And most of the time people are going wrong with that balance. If we were to go out into the West End of London tonight, uh, all type one happinesses are available for sale. Uh, you can purchase them with, the, with, with money, but you cannot purchase type two happiness. Well, you could go onto a dodgy website and get a PhD on, on the cheap, but that's a different story altogether. Generally speaking, think about the fact that type two happiness is not purchasable in quite the same way that type one happiness is. And that may be where a lot of people are going wrong. Now, another very important result here that's, that's very important is that Every single decision you make in your life is based on, a, on a, a, a thing that psychologists refer to as affective forecasting. You are forecasting with every decision you make, no matter how micro, how happy that decision is going to make you at some point in the future. So you walk into the supermarket, you're not sure what to have to dinner, you decide you're going to buy a can of baked beans. You are effectively, affective, affective being the word about emotion, forecasting your emotional state when you eat the baked beans later on that evening. And theoretically, if you make the right predictions about your ultimate happiness levels, you should be a happy person. However, the research indicates, by and large, people are terrible at effective forecasting. They're really bad at getting it right about their future happiness levels, depending on decisions they make today. When you're looking at the can of baked beans, there's a type one, type two tension going on. The can of baked beans may taste very nice, in which case it will deliver type one happiness. It may be really bad for you, you're gonna put on a lot of weight, in which case if you were to go for the two sticks of celery next to it, you're delivering a type two response instead of a type one. So over and over again, there's a constant tension between type one and type two happiness. And here's another ultimate paradox. 
Type two happiness usually involves suffering. It takes suffering to get out of bed at 5.30 in the morning and go for a run. When you go for the run, you feel better for it in the, in the longer term. So type two happiness always starts with an emotional cadence of really feeling really bad at the beginning of it and feeling better at the end of it. Type one happiness is a different emotional cadence. So you feel great at the beginning of eating the cream blancmange, but terrible afterwards. So this, this notion at the paradox at the heart of the problem of happiness is they will be suffering in order to deliver happiness, if you understand this type one, type two distinction. And this is where people are often going wrong and why they're not delivering um, long-term happiness um, in, in their lives. Um, so one final thing, because we're running out of time and Michael wanted me to make sure we left enough time for um, questions. Um, I think we'll skip forward to um, the next, uh, there may be a polling question coming up on the next slide. Uh, let me yeah, in a more individualistic country, are people happier or sadder? In other words, is there a correlation or association between individualism, collectivism, and happiness? More individualistic countries are happier or sadder. So over to you in terms of what you think the answer is. So individualistic countries are countries where people uh, pursue uh, their own ends. Um, they believe in independence. They don't believe in being dependent on other people. Collectivist societies are ones where people tend to do things more in groups and they tend to think about their lives in terms of the obligations they have to other people and living in communities and being part of a community. So let's see what people think is the answer. Great. Uh, we've just got 70% voted. I'm going to leave it open a couple more seconds. Uh, getting well up there. Almost the whole audience has voted, and I'll now share the results with you. Um, so they believe 76, it's uh, three quarters to one quarter on Saturday. Okay, now very interestingly, again, it's a trick question in a way because there's an intermediate or mediating variable we have left out. Always be thinking about these mediating variables. The richer countries that are more individualistic, individualism seems to lead to happiness. In poorer countries where people need each other more, where a community spirit will be more helpful, uh, individualism tends to lead to more unhappiness. So individualism makes sense when you don't need people because you're wealthier. Whereas individualism leads to more unhappiness in societies where you might need people, where being more communitarian makes sense. So one final point I want to make about the secret of happiness, which is linked to the slide, and then we'll, we'll take a pause and go to um, taking some questions from the audience. So um, the other reason that people don't think clearly about happiness, given you've got to get to the type one, type two distinction, and anytime anyone ever uses the word happiness in your presence from now on, ask them, what do they mean by that word? And in particular, which happiness are they referring to, type one or type two? It's a very important conceptual tool. But another poor um, definition of happiness that you see in the newspapers, given they don't define it, is the intensity of happiness is extremely important. So we could grade people on a very rough scale of naught to 10 on their happiness levels right now, as you're listening to me. And if you were scoring eight, nine or 10 on this happiness scale, in other words, we'll call that throbbing ecstasy, very intense happiness then um, there'll be a small group of people out there experiencing that. Um, a large number of people will be clustering in the bell curve of this distribution in the middle of four, five, or six, which is mild contentment. And finally, there'll be people scraping along at the bottom, feeling suicidally depressed at not one, two, or three. Now, the really interesting thing is if we did another survey in a year's time and then came back and measured everyone's happiness levels, uh, the people who were experiencing throbbing ecstasy i.e. high intensity happiness while I was talking, are extremely unlikely to be hitting eight, nine or 10 in a year's time. In fact, if you were to take a bet, they may be at eight, nine or 10, but they're more likely to be at naught, one, two or three. In other words, intense emotions tend to lead to a roller coaster ride of intense pleasures and intense sadnesses. If you wanted to take a bet on who was gonna be more or less the same in a year's time, the people at the four, five, six level, in other words, mild contentment, are extremely likely to be getting mild contentment in about a year's time. So in other words, mild contentment is more stable. In other words, don't pursue intense happiness. Pursue mild contentment because it's more stable and more likely to be deliverable in the long run. Now, you can see why this is a result that, again, doesn't attract the media or the press, because um, this title, don't go for intense happiness, go for mild contentment, is not very sexy. And the whole advertising culture around us where an attractive person is draped over the bonnet of a BMW is all about the idea you buy the BMW, you will get intense happiness. No one's flogging mild contentment, but mild contentment is actually the thing you should be after. 
So I show this slide because these are the people demonstrating. Um, you don't get people demonstrating going to parliament um, shouting, what do we want? Mild contentment. When do we want it? Well, whenever you can get around to it because they're mildly contented. Um, so mild contentment, we're going to conclude here. There's other things to say, but we're, we're going to open it up for some questions. Uh, mild contentment, secret of happiness, number one, is what you should be pursuing. Secret of happiness, number two, have the right balance of type one and type two happiness. Secret of happiness, three, take happiness very seriously. You're not taking it seriously enough because it's the ultimate purpose of life. Thank you very much indeed, Michael. Let's try open to some questions now. Raj, that's great. Uh, well, we've got a lot of questions. We Don't forget, we've got a quick poll at some point as well, but let's get cracking on the questions. Um, Ray Durrani uh, is, is curious, and as is uh, Jeremy uh, uh, Wilson uh, and a couple of others. Um, could you talk just a little bit more about the link between happiness and health and longevity? Um, yeah, there's a lot of evidence that um, people who are more optimistic um, um, tend to live longer. There's some famous experiments done where studies done where they looked at um, um, school photographs of people um, being photographed when they're five or six years old in a school photograph. You know, there's about 20, 30 people or 100 people in a school photograph when you're eight, nine, 10, 11, or 12. And they look at the people who are smiling more broadly compared to the people who are not smiling and then follow them up to see who lives longer. And amazingly enough, um, uh, that, that smiling in a school photograph can predict how long you end up living. So um, there's um, a lot of evidence that optimism um, is linked to um, uh, longevity. However, um, it's important that you don't have unintelligent optimism. So intelligence comes into it. You could say smokers are overly optimistic about their ability to evade cancer if they continue smoking. So optimism there would be a bad thing in that situation. So the, the psychologists like to refer to the notion of realistic optimism as being important. Um, so um, optimism is definitely important in terms of longevity. And I do believe that people's emotional health um, is important. But let's go back to happiness. When I say happier people than to live longer, what I mean by those happier people are the right balance between type one and type two. People who are simply pursuing type one happiness um, tend not to live so long. When you look at the obituary columns in newspapers and you look at the ages at which people die, the pop stars, the rock stars, the artists, the people who lead more emotional lives, the people who have been more in the realm of type one happiness tend to die a lot younger than the scientists, if you look at that, who are often more pursuing more type two happiness. OK, I hope that's answered that question. Yeah, that's great. We've got a, well, our, our fellow graduate professor, Tim Connell, makes a point. Uh, do you have to be ambitious in order to be happy? Uh, and I yeah, and there are a couple of other comments that are quite similar. So uh, let me just read a few out. Uh, Graham Elliott, is deferring gratification usually a driver of greater happiness as it allows you to contemplate the pleasure as well as have the pleasure? And this is a variety of type two happiness. So ambition and deferred gratification. So you see right there again, it's important they define what they mean by happiness. Clearly, it is the case that ambition and delayed gratification are very strongly associated with greater type two happiness. If you're not delaying gratification, then you're pursuing type one happiness over type two. So you see the power of the conceptual distinction, extremely important indeed. Um, so ambition um, is linked to more type two happiness as long as you are succeeding as you climb the greasy pole. Ambition becomes associated with great unhappiness when you are doing all your best to get the gold medal in the 100 meters of the Olympics and you've defined your life by that goal and you spent 10 years of training and then in the race itself, uh, you don't come in first and get the gold medal. Now, there's a very important point here about the ultimate secret to happiness, which is yes, pursuing goals gives one's life meaning and purpose and the type two happiness realm. But you've also got to be able, when you don't get the goal, which will happen from time to time, and we're going to discuss this, this important point in, in, in a second, um, you have to be able to, to, to come to terms with that. And a lot of people get suicidally depressed if they didn't get the gold medal in the Olympic Games. And that's where the, the problem with um, uh, pursuing things um, and, and defining your life by them can be a recipe for unhappiness. There's a big key moment in time frame before you attain the goal to afterwards. If you don't attain the goal, that's be a big frame shift to making your life work despite the fact you haven't attained the goal. And that's quite important. And this, this leads to another very, very important point I want to just talk a little bit about to do with um, another key um, point about happiness. So 
A very famous psychology experiment um, is done whereby um, people are given a very mundane task to do. They're asked to photocopy some paper, very mundane. And they're asked afterwards to fill out a questionnaire that probes their happiness levels. And the, the question is designed to get a sense much more of how content they feel about their whole life, the whole span of their mm -hmm. life over the last few decades, not how happy they're feeling right now. So the questionnaire focuses them to address their overall contentment levels when they consider the whole lifespan. In condition two of the experiment, they're given the same mundane photocopying task, only yeah, this experiment was done many years ago, where the experimenter designs it to be the case that although the subject doesn't realize it's part of the experimental design, 50 pence, a very innocuous sum of money, is left in the photocopy machine that the person who been photocopying finds by accident. So it's an accidental, unexpected gift. It's trivial. It's a very small sum of money. When you ask those people how happy they're feeling when they think about their whole lifespan, the unexpected result is the, un the discovery of 50 pence piece in the photocopying machine significantly raises their happiness levels, which is a bit of a bizarre result. Either it means people can't really think about happiness. Is it really the case that discovering 50 pence in a photocopying machine completely changes your whole assessment of how worthwhile your life has been? No. What this experiment suggests is the power of unexpected benefits. It was an unexpected gift and the power of the unexpected in delivering happiness. When you deliver flowers to someone on Valentine's Day, it's not nearly going to have the same effect, but it's kind of expected that when you deliver flowers unexpectedly on a day that's not Valentine's Day, the power of the unexpected to deliver happiness. And here we have a paradox. By definition, when you engage in the world and try to make the unexpected happen, how do you make the unexpected happen? By definition, unexpected good things could happen as well as bad things. So there's a, this is a very deep result, which is that the way to have more happiness is to bring more of the unexpected into your life, but be braced for the fact that by definition, if it really is unexpected, unexpected bad things are more likely to happen as well. Okay, I hope I've answered that question. Yeah, I think so. We've got, we've got some, the audience has really picked up on this. Uh, Julia George says, you know, are we talking about having a life purpose to achieve type two happiness? Uh, but interestingly, I, I really like this uh, comment by Donald McRae. Can one achieve major change by pursuing mild contentment? Um, ah, okay. Well, that's a deep question about personal change. Um, and that's a very good point. But I guess your deep point, which is a whole other subject, which is how do we achieve personal change? And he's right that there's a sense in which one of the things that produces personal change is experiences and they tend to be experiences that are of a rather intense nature, okay? Um, what I was trying to suggest more with the idea that beware the pursuit of intense happiness is not that every single opportunity for happiness that comes your way, you should go, ooh, get worried about that. This roller coaster ride is gonna cause intense happiness. Better back away from that. I wasn't trying to suggest that. What I was trying to suggest is beware the idea that everything you're pursuing, you're pursuing because you're really after an intense high. So. You work very hard at a major bank all the hours that God sends because you want to own a Ferrari. Let's just go with that example. Well, why do you want to own the Ferrari? There's something about the intensity of the happiness of the do you think the Ferrari is going to deliver, which explains why you're working till three in the morning. I'm saying beware the pursuit of things in the longer term where what you're really after is some intense experience because those intense experiences don't really last. I fully accept in the average week your life would be rather dry and empty if it weren't quite a few intense experiences. But that should, that should be part of the rich tapestry of life. It should not be the main thing you're after. And all the advertising culture we live in, every single thing that's flogged to you on television is flogged to you on the basis that if you get this thing, you will be intensely happy. No one's selling a product saying, if you buy this thing, it will deliver mild contentment. And therefore there is an error occurring in our culture where we're being pushed in a direction of pursuing intensity over more structured, uh, long-term stable contentment. I hope that answers the question. Um, got a, sort of a double question here. Christopher Gleedel is curious, you know, are people with a high uh, EQ, emotional quotient, happier? And also, uh, I've got uh, two questions. Uh, James Nisbet and um, Human Saeed Zanuzi are curious, is there any link between uh, religion and faith and happiness? Okay, these are excellent questions. So let's take the EQ question. EQ is emotional quotient. It came along um, when people discovered that IQ was not explaining a large number of people's success in life. People are often leaving elite universities with top grades and scoring very high in IQ tests. 
and not really seeming to be that successful in life afterwards. So that's when the concept of EQ came along, which is that you've got to be able to handle interviews, handle bosses, handle boyfriends and girlfriends. And that means emotional intelligence, that the way we make our way through life is through other people, through relationships. Your boss has to give you a promotion. If you're a high IQ person that kind of like irritates your boss because you seem to know more than he does all the time or she does, then you're not going to get the promotion or the pay rise. So this introduced the concept of EQ, which is being emotionally intelligent and therefore being more aware of emotions and handling other people's emotions, not just your own. So, yes, um, there is a link. But if you're a high EQ person, but you never understood this distinction, which I just made between type one and type two happiness, you will still end up in trouble because you'll still be pursuing probably too much type one happiness over the correct balance between type one and type two. However, there is a deep point here, which is that what is it that ultimately delivers happiness? It tends not to be Ferraris. It tends to be relationships. So being good at relationships. In other words, being the kind of person that people want to be in a relationship with is a key life skill. And I do think that is not taught in schools um, for some bizarre reason. And there are rules to relationships. And in the, in the, in, if you think about you walk into a bar, you see a very attractive person in the bar and you're very loaded now on the type one happiness situation in terms of going over and chatting to them. And that person may be fantastic as a way they look and and, and you may, they, they may be gorgeous on the first few dates, but they may not deliver type two happiness in the long run in terms of the long run values like loyalty, um, dependability, et cetera, et cetera. So even when you think about relationships and who you're drawn to, think about the type one, type two thing. What are you after exactly in this relationship? Have no problem if you're hanging out with people who only deliver type one happiness, but in the long run, it's gonna be people who also deliver the right balance of type one and type two that make for the best relationships. So relationships are certainly a thing that um, uh, delivers um, happiness uh, much more than objects. Now, going back to the point about religion, the religion question is very, very interesting because a lot of research is very mixed on this. Certainly religion in a crisis uh, is very helpful as a buffer in terms of making people resilient because what religion says is, I know you're suffering a great deal, but there's meaning to your suffering. God will make sure everything's all right in the end. And that's a very reassuring thing if you're in a lifeboat and the Titanic had just gone down uh, behind you. So um, if you don't have religion and you're in a lifeboat, and the Titanic's just gone down behind you, it's a tougher call in terms of how you survive and are more resilient. Resilience is still possible. Um, the problem though with um, religion is it leads to fatalism. Um, when you don't get the job interview, the danger is you go, well, it was God's wishes that I didn't get the job interview. And that fatalism leads you to not act upon the world enough and determine your outcomes. The evidence is that motivated, successful people tend to believe their destiny is in their hands. And that's a very important point. And religion tends to take your destiny away from being your hands, by and large. So should we do the last polling question? Because we're running out of time. Uh, we do, uh, we've got uh, quite a few people interested. Uh, Trevor Hilder is asking, you know, which European country is happy, happiest? Uh, I've got some pointers as well from um, Richard Parler uh, that the UAE has appointed a Minister of Happiness. And do you have any views on a World Happiness Index um, and a couple of other questions of, of a similar nature? So I'll just launch this poll while you talk to it. Yeah. OK, so this poll is when you measure average happiness levels, which country got happier between the 1970s and the early 2000s? Was it France or Germany? Now, um, uh, let's just see what people think about this. Um, and remember, one of the things you're always thinking about when you see surveys is, did the surveyor define happiness, given I've just said to you that happiness is a very, very important thing to define carefully, because it's a complicated subject. Unless you define it carefully, you're not exactly sure how people are answering. Let's see what people think. And yeah, here we okay. come back. Um, yeah, same as before, almost three quarters uh, for Germany and a quarter for France. And as I confessed, I thought Germany would probably be the answer here. So what is it? Yes. So, of course, I designed this question so always to surprise you and challenge you. I thought most people would go for Germany, and I thought most people would go for Germany because they're thinking that Germany, generally speaking, is a more successful country, maybe in terms of governance and maybe in terms of economic um, success. Um, in fact, when you aggregate the data, France comes out marginally ahead of Germany over that period of time. And what you did not think about is a major event that happened in Germany, which is the coming down of the Berlin Wall. So a bunch of East Germans entered the West German data, and those East Germans were very unhappy. 
as a result of that massive sink of unhappiness, it diluted out those happy West Germans. So Germany's happiness levels in aggregate, remember we're always thinking about in aggregate, went down dramatically. I'm sure it's recovering now those East Germans have benefited, obviously I'm slightly biased towards a free market, have benefited from a, a healthier system and more democracy. Um, but, but think hard about what happens as explaining happiness levels. Michael, yeah, I, say something. I'd just like to um, cover a few items. We'll go a couple minutes over because it's going too well and the audience is uh, loving you, Raj. I got a lot here. Uh, Hannah Needle makes a very important point. Please, uh, could you, could Raj repeat the three main takeaways from his talk? Um, oh, well, first of all, take happiness seriously. This is Aristotle's fundamental point, which is happiness is the ultimate purpose of life. Think about the fact that at middle class dinner parties, you make small talk. You never turn to someone and go, say, what do you think is the ultimate purpose of life? The ancient Greeks would suggest you need to be having more of that conversation with your partner, with people that are important to you, with your children. You should be saying to them, what do you think is the ultimate purpose of life? People find that question really threatening. Now, the framework I gave you to do with happiness, which is why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do that? And ultimately, you come to this endpoint because it will make you happy is a very useful framework, but it starts to help you think about the ultimate purpose, maybe to deliver happiness. That's an answer to the question. However, it defrays back to a further deeper point, which is what do we mean by the word happiness? You need to think hard about what you mean by the word happiness. In my consultations, I say to people, when were you happiest in your life? It's really amazing how very few people can answer that question straight away. And then I go, well, why were you happiest at that moment? Another interesting question, do you think your happiest days are behind you or in front of you? Um, so um, think about um, ultimate purpose. Think about type one and type two happiness as an important distinction. Understand the connection between the two and think about the right balance. Have you got the right balance between type one and type two happiness? One simple answer to the question, if you're not very happy, or you feel you could be happier, is you've got the balance wrong between type one and type two happiness. Type one is hedonistic pleasure, a nice glass of wine, watching a movie. Type two happiness is overcoming difficulty. A good example is nursing a sick child through the night. No one enjoys nursing a sick child through the night, but there's a certain satisfaction if the child is alive the next morning, the achievement in having nursed that sick child successfully through the night. Um, you get the West End of London tonight, you can't buy nursing a sick child through the night. It's not available for sale. No one's touting that. Why? Okay. Well, um, uh, it, it, it's because it's a type two happiness. Type two happiness is usually things you deliver to the world, and type one happiness is the things you take from the world. So have that right balance. The final point is think hard about intensity of the emotion you are pursuing. If you're pursuing something because you want a Ferrari because it's going to make you intensely happy, beware of that. Intense emotions are more fragile and precarious. Go for milder contentment. Uh, it's less exciting, it's less sexy, but much more stable. So those were some of the take-home messages. And well, also, pursue the unexpected. Sorry, one final point. Pursue oh. the unexpected, because real joy comes from unexpected benefits. Well, this is super. The audience is picking this up. Uh, uh, Bob McDowell's throwing a couple of classic quotes back at you. You know, there's a bit of carpe diem, but also equus animus, a balanced mind essential to happiness, uh, one and two. Um, a lot of interesting comments about relationships. Uh, Charles Vermont on what about the happiness I drive? from knowing that other people love me. Alex Eagle about teaching a literate person to read opens up your mind uh, and their mind. That's a type two happiness, that second one. Yeah. Yep, uh, type two, Ian Waddle, oh, sorry, Ian Waddy on uh, type two happiness requires interaction with other people. Even when you write a PhD, you hope it will add to the body of knowledge uh, that you're doing. And a lot of distinctions here between, uh, uh, you're, the audience is desperate to help those poor psychologists who aren't psychiatrists label things better. Uh, but I think there's a balance coming up. The type one should be uh, probably defined as pleasure. Uh, type two is satisfaction. Uh, Ian Harris makes the wry comment that uh, he, he wants to thank you. He is mildly content with your talk and your answers. <laughs> so, that doesn't so make that, me happy. I wanted intense happiness as a result of the talk. <laughs> I was just about, uh, and there's some detailed comments if we have more time about uh, disease and, and health and uh, biological correlation. So a lot happening out there uh, in the audience. And as I said, I'll pass all that Q&A on to you. Uh, but would you like to comment on, the, on the, the, the last two slides? Yeah, have we got we've got about five minutes to go? Is that is that all right? 
Make it three. <laughs> okay, three. Okay, well, so this is a slide of me playing beach tennis. So you're thinking, why am I showing you a slide of me playing beach tennis? In the background is my, who's looking very unhappy, is my beach tennis partner, Chris Turner. Chris Turner is ranked number 200 in the world of beach tennis in terms of rankings. I know you don't think it's a serious sport, but it is a serious sport. And I've played in, um, I'm very proud to say this, it's the kind of thing that I, I, I find um, by announcing bars, I, I get a lot of um, um, action. Um, so uh, I was... Uh, Two years ago, uh, UK um, number 17 in beach tennis, men's number, my ranking in beach tennis. My wife said when I answered her very proudly, the rankings just come out, I'm, I'm UK number 17, men, men's number 17 in beach tennis. She said, how many men play beach tennis in the UK? Is it 15? Which I thought was a bit harsh. Um, so I got into beach tennis through a series of accidents and I play lots of other sports. But really this slide is to illustrate something that um, the way I got into it was by sending an email, random email off to an organization I found called the British Beach Tennis um, Federation or Beach Tennis Association, discovered this sport existed. So it's an example of the unexpected occurring. The other thing is this is a bit of fun. This is purely type one happiness and middle-class people, professional people who are, who are pursuing success at dinner parties always talk about you know their latest promotion or the latest ferrari they've got they don't really discuss fun and that's they're missing out to some extent on the correct balance take fun seriously so obviously i take my job very seriously but i enjoy playing things like beach tennis and the right balance in life is to have the right balance between type one and type two and don't be afraid of the pursuit of happiness people feel somehow guilty or weird now, I, I, I was hoping Michael would not show this slide, but it's fine that oh, he has done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is me playing beach tennis at the World Championships in Barcelona. When I sent my wife this picture, because she didn't come to Barcelona, she's not interested in beach tennis. Um, she said immediately, oh, shouldn't you be practicing beach tennis? Shouldn't you be in training for the match the next day? I said, I am in training. These are the few people I'm training with. Um, uh, now, I, I, just to apologize, I don't know who these two people are. They just kind of latched on to me for the whole week before the, before the final. <laughs> and followed me around Barcelona. It's one of those things. Anyway, um, uh, the, the point is I do take beach tennis seriously. I do a lot of training and practicing, believe it or not, this picture doesn't really give that away. When people play a sport, there's a balance of type one and type two. You should play the sport because you enjoy and have fun. But if you want to get better and have coaching and training, then the sport will become less frustrating. There's always at any one moment in your life, a balance or a distinction between type one and type two. It informs every single second of your life. Think about type one and type two as informing every decision, every moment, and you will, in the end, be happier. Raj, that was super, and uh, I'm so, I apologize for running a little over time to the audience, but I hope it was worth uh, hanging in there. Um, Raj, if I might, very quickly, uh, what is interesting is I, I opened by saying our community is very much about technology, economics, and finance, but you're pointing out there really is science behind this, as well as deep thinking. I've taken a lot away and I won't dare to summarize it, but may I thank uh, our sponsors for allowing us to, to, to range wi widely and freely across areas of mild contentment. Um, I'd like to thank you, the audience. You've clearly enjoyed today. And uh, for those of you who could stay on a little longer, I'm glad that you did. Um, we do, as ever, have a rich program coming ahead. I won't try and read it out. Check out the website as ever. Uh, but the most important thing, Raj, is to thank you. Unfortunately, these in these days of uh, COVID-19, I'm unable to open the gates of applause, uh, but I hope that you're mildly content with a karmist, uh, karmic clapper here from Korea, which uh, we'll have to substitute for the audience. And I hope that you have a mildly content weekend. Um, I certainly will, and I've had a good few giggles along the way. Thank you so much, Raj, for a great presentation. Thank you. Thank you.